start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber, and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order. This morning I went out into my garden early and the beginnings of the dawn chorus are happening. The dawn chorus is that wonderful burst of bird song that peaks in spring and fades out in the summer. But at the moment it's just rising to its full crescendo. I heard blackbirds and there were great tits and blue tits and there's also a little wren that chirrups in the foliage at the end of the garden. And seeing this wildlife in action really puts it into perspective for me. Our gardens don't exist in a vacuum just for us. They're part of a much larger ecosystem. They provide habitats that are crucial for supporting biodiversity and can offer scores of additional environmental benefits. Everything from storing carbon and cleaning our air to preventing floods and reducing soil erosion. Of course, some horticultural practices are better for the environment than others. So today, we'll be looking at straightforward alternatives we can take up to transform our gardens into the sustainable havens our world deserves. This is about how you garden in a different way where you're working with nature rather than against it. That's Chris Baines, one of the UK's foremost environmentalists. He laid the groundwork for wildlife gardening in the 1970s and 80s. And he'll be talking with us today about how the practice has changed over the last 50 years. Next up, RHS advisor Nikki Barker will let us in on the top tricks for how to grow seeds and cuttings in peat-free compost. We get a lot of members saying they're not actually having much success propagating with peat-free compost, particularly with seed sowing. And actually that's because they're treating it exactly the same as a peat-based compost. And finally, Jenny Bowden, another RHS advisor and a long-time friend of the show, will let us in on the research she's doing to find the best and the most sustainable alternatives to box hedges. Box tolerates a really wide range of soil conditions and temperature-wise, it's happy in a very wide range of temperatures as well. So it's a really, really tough cookie to come up with an alternative. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. I almost don't know where to start when introducing Chris Baines. He's a conservationist and naturalist, author, environmental advisor, horticulturist, landscape architect and more. An all-round legend in the industry. Way back in 1985, he wrote a book called How to Make a Wildlife Garden, which revolutionised the way we think about gardens and the role they play. And this month, a new edition of the book is being published 
with updated advice and an in-depth reflection on what's changed. Gareth Richards, an editor of The Garden magazine and my co-presenter, got to speak with Chris about all this and more. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honour to have you on the programme. So can you just introduce yourself for people who don't know you? I'm Chris Baines. I've been campaigning for 50-odd years, I suppose, to bring people and nature closer together. I trained as a horticulturalist, grew up in a family of passionate gardeners and countryside lovers, studied horticulture in the 1960s, and was rather shocked when I went to university to discover that I was just being taught how to kill everything. The 1960s was all about pesticides, herbicides. And this was just uh, a few years after Silent Spring had been first published. Uh, yeah. so, the Rachel Carson book. Yeah, it was a yeah. really interesting time, really, where technology was seen as the future of land management and agriculture. But at mm. the same time, the warning signals were starting to emerge. And I spent the next 10 years, I suppose, after I graduated in fairly orthodox stuff. I designed gardens in Kidderminster, I forested the deserts of Abu Dhabi, I did all kinds of things, but got more and more frustrated, really, by two things, really, the loss of the landscape that I loved, you know, there were no longer even then any lapwings in the fields that I'd grown up around Sheffield with, but also that there was still this determination that our role was to suppress nature rather yes. than to work with it. And I felt from the beginning that as a gardener, you know, what I loved about being in the garden was the sound of the birds, you know, it was actually seeing the bees on the flowers. And why was horticulture missing that? And why was conservation missing it too? Nature conservation then was all about rare and precious in special places where if you could possibly exclude people, you should. I was working by then in the inner city, particularly in grim parts of London and Liverpool and Manchester and Birmingham, and working with communities who had nothing really in the way of access to nature, except the bits of scrap land, and maybe if they were really lucky, a school grounds or a park or a garden. And yet the passion was there. And I worked in Brixton at the time of the Brixton riots, and at the end of the riots, when everything was trashed, nobody had touched the sunflowers on the Tulse Hill Nature Garden because wow. the kids had grown them. And yeah. those kids were as fascinated by the green fly on the Rose Bay Willow herb as anybody could be fascinated by just missing seeing a kingfisher, you know. So that was really the motivation First, saying to myself, it would be good to do something with my horticultural skills that brought those two interests closer together, and particularly where people actually lived and worked, rather than out yes. in the wider countryside. Yeah, that's such an important point, isn't it? Because the traditional view, as you said, about nature conservation is it's somewhere else, you know, it's preserving the rainforest, it's, you know, looking at big game in Africa, but actually this whole world of wildlife just out there on our doorstep waiting to be discovered. But you, you were very much a wildlife gardening pioneer, weren't you? Because you you took the first wildlife garden to Chelsea. And even before that, amazingly, I made a wildlife garden on Gardener's World for BBC. And I created something which I called the Rich Habitat Garden in 1979. So that's a heck of a long time ago. Yeah. And I just remember Peter 
looking at me, and I at that stage I had a beard, long hair, you know, I was about the opposite end of the spectrum from Peter Seabrook, for anybody yes. who knew him, in his tie and his, you know, that was the way the BBC was in those days. And he said, well, what, what's the idea of this garden? And I said, well, the idea is that it should be a nice garden to be in and good for families, but I want to attract as much wildlife as possible. And I remember him just saying in a really kind of scathing way, you really think Britain's gardeners are going to be interested in that? And I, I just thought, well, actually, I do think Britain's mm -hmm. gardeners are going to be interested in that because... Actually, it's what most people enjoy about being outside in their garden. And the garden is such an obvious place to begin that process, really. So Chelsea was a, a major milestone. I've always, as a campaigner, believed that you have to influence the influential, if you like. And there was nowhere more influential then as now than the RHS shows. And at that time, it was really only Chelsea. What was the reaction to it? I mean, the public loved it, absolutely loved it. The buzz around the garden as they were kind of pointing to primroses and cowslips in the lawn yeah. and bluebells and things. The RHS, I think, were completely wrong-footed by it, really, and so much so that on my Chelsea medal, it actually is inscribed on the back to J.C. Baines for his wildfire garden. So <laughs> they actually really couldn't get their heads around the idea that you could have wildlife and garden in the same sentence. So that's how, how revolutionary it was, really. Yeah. If you were going to kind of define wildlife gardening, how would you do it? So you've written in the book, you know, the core wildlife gardening message remains the same. If we can take care of nature, then nature will take care of us. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Well, I think one of the important messages for me always has been this is about a garden. This is about gardening. This is not about how you create a nature reserve. This is about how you garden in a different way where you're working with nature rather than against it. So wildlife gardening is very much about drawing the wildlife from your neighbourhood into your patch where you can help and support it, but also very importantly, where you can observe and enjoy it. So it's that interaction between people and wildlife. I've just been watching a female black cat bathing on a little bubbler fountain outside my window. Now, Black caps used to be entirely migratory. They're a beautiful warbling bird, and they used to arrive from Africa in the spring, nest here, fly back again. They now, many of them, spend the whole winter here. And we only really began to realise that climate change was having that kind of effect on those birds because gardeners were able to see that happening outside yes. their window. So that immediacy, I think, is really what's exciting about wildlife gardening. Yeah, and it gives us that really, really valuable kind of sense of information about what's going on in the natural world. And how do you think over the past few decades that wildlife gardening has changed and evolved? There's been a, an enormous kind of mainstreaming of the whole idea. And one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time updating the book, apart from the fact that it's a completely new design, it looks stunning, I have to say. But I also wanted the chance to talk about how things have changed. And they've changed in good ways and bad ways. I mean, there are some species that have undoubtedly been saved, I think it's fair to say, by wildlife gardening. Goldfinches, for instance, were extremely rare farmland birds 35 years ago. Now I get notes and letters from people who regularly get 40 or 50 goldfinches on their bird wow. feeders. That's, that's really inspiring, isn't it? A change in behaviour can really have a tangible difference. 
Yeah, and I think the problems of the environment are so enormous, you know, and you see the photographs of tropical rainforest or whales or uh, polar bears, and you think, well, what on earth can I do? And I think wildlife gardening has given many, many people the sense that, well, yeah, I can do a little bit. And if actually all my neighbours begin to do a little bit more, then maybe between us we can save the roaming hedgehog or make sure that the toads get from one pond to another. And for a lot of people, I think that's made a difference. If you were going to give us just a few simple and easy tips for creating a green patch that really brings in lots of wildlife, what would be your must-have plants or must-have features? If people want to do just one or two things, where should they start? This week, actually, is National Nest Box Week. So one of the simplest things that people can do is actually provide extra nesting sites. You know, even if all you've got is a, a third or fourth floor balcony, putting a nest box up, you may very well get blue tits to nest in there. As a gardener, what you want to try and do is create shelter and enclosure and cover. So yeah. not having bare earth, but covering the ground so that there's something to scratch around in if you're a blackbird. And then choosing the plants that will give you the longest possible season for nectar and for pollen and for seeds and berries in the autumn. And the Royal Horticultural Society has done a lot of work in the last 10 or 15 years on garden plants that are particularly good for pollen and nectar. And I suppose the most valuable thing that you can do, if you possibly can, is to get some water into the garden. There's no question that if you put even the smallest pond or smallest patch of water into the garden, it becomes a magnet for the neighbourhood, really. And I remember when I first wrote the book, I had lots of letters from people. I had a wonderful letter from a woman who said, I have frogs that come every year to two ice cream boxes on my back lawn. And she said, the reason is that somebody gave me a jam jar full of frog spawn and I put it into a big plastic container and then I fed the tadpoles on cat meat and eventually they hopped away at the end out of my container. And then the following spring, I looked out on the lawn and all these frogs turning up. So I had to put their the, ancestral home. <laughs> yeah, so their ancestral <laughs> home was a little plastic box with water in it. You can do a bit better than that, but actually, even a you know old sink or anything with a few plants in the bottom of it, some mud in the bottom of it, ideally, so that things like damselfly larvae can bury themselves in the mud, and almost within minutes of putting the water in, miraculously, pond skaters arrive. You know, whirligig beetles fly in. Outside my window, I have a stone with a, a bubbler fountain with water trickling over the top of it, which is actually something I did in that very first garden for Gardener's World all those years ago. And that, in the next few weeks, certainly, as the young birds begin to emerge, the fledglings, there will be a queue of baby blue tits and baby great tits waiting to kind of bathe on. In fact, the blue tits just arrived this second and bouncing up and down on the bubbler fountain, cleaning its feathers. And I get gold crests on there and I get I had a black cap this morning. So really, it's a simple thing, but actually yes. the water just, it's the water of life, you know, it brings things yeah. to life. And if you're just starting, then, uh, as many people will be, then actually feeling that, the smallest thing, you know, just not spraying the lawn with weed killer, not feeding everything with pesticides will make a difference and you'll hear it and you'll see it and you'll have a better sense of the, of the spring and the summer and the autumn. And I hope that quite a lot of people will enjoy the new edition of the book 
because it has much more of that learning in it. There's much more of a sense of how things have changed, but also it's a very optimistic book that talks about the difference we can still make and must now make if we're really going to kind of undo the damage of the last century or so, really. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I love your note of optimism and I feel really inspired to get out into my garden and do absolutely everything I can for wildlife because I know the planet needs it, but I need it too. You can find a link to the new edition of Chris's book, which is titled The RHS Companion to Wildlife Gardening, in our show notes. I remember reading Chris's book many years ago and also when he lectured at the university course I was doing on horticulture at the time. He made a profound impression. At that time, wildlife gardening was thought to be the province of cranks and people who were enthusiastic but not real gardeners. How things have changed and we think about wildlife in our gardens at the same time as we think about the colour and the shape and the form of our gardens. And that's a really good thing. As Chris said, the enormous scale of the problems of the environment make you think that what on earth can I do? But in fact, there are things that can be done. One of the small ways to make a big difference is to go peat free. We've said it before and we'll say it again. Peatlands store a mind-blowing amount of carbon. In fact, they hold double the amount of carbon than the world's forests. By harvesting peat for gardening compost, we're disturbing these vital habitats and releasing unnecessary carbon into the atmosphere. We know going peat-free comes with its own host of challenges. But don't worry, we're not leaving you hanging. Last week, I sat down with RHS advisor Nikki Barker to talk through how best to grow using peat-free compost. So, Nikki, what's special about peat-free compost? Well, it's really important that we go over to peat-free compost. And actually, from next year, peat-based compost won't be available as a retail product so we need to learn how to use peat-free compost and we get a lot of members saying they're not actually having much success propagating with peat-free compost particularly with seed sowing and actually that's because they're treating it exactly the same as a peat-based compost and in actual fact it just needs a little bit different treatment it needs maybe different watering requirements, different feeding requirements. And it's good to practice maybe with some easier to grow plants. So that might be things like peas and beans before you start using it on things that may be slightly harder to germinate or propagate. So, yeah, I'm honestly not that old, but in the same way as there must have been a crossover from using soil-based compost to peat-based compost. People had to get used to using peat-based composts. You're absolutely right. I remember when gardeners largely used soil-based composts and there was a bit of kickback when they started to use peat-based composts, but the wheel has come somewhat of a circle. Now, today we're going to talk about peat-free propagation. And can you just explain what you mean by propagation here? So propagation is when you are producing new plants, and that might be from seed, but it might be from cuttings as well. Do you have to choose a special compost for seed sowing? It is better to use a seed compost. So lots of manufacturers produce seed and cutting composts, and they also produce multi-purpose composts. But seed and cutting composts have a different nutrient content 
good ones have a finer mill grade as well. So the actual compost is finer, which is particularly important for some of the finer seeds. You can get away with using a multi-purpose compost for lots of easy to germinate seeds, runner beans, things like that. But actually, for a lot of plants, particularly actually, I think things like chilies and tomatoes, it is better to start them off in a proper seed and cutting compost. Are these composts all the same or do you have to change your methods when you're using them? They're not all the same and some have higher composted bark content and some have higher coir content. The difference is, as opposed to peat-based compost, you need to be more careful with the watering. They tend to hold water quite well and so... Because the surface looks dry, people often overwater them. And you need to actually check the moisture content towards the bottom of your pot or seed tray or cell tray. And I think it's important to remember that with peat-free compost, sometimes when once the seeds have germinated, you might need to start liquid feeding a little bit earlier than you would have done with a peat-based compost. But that's fine. Don't wait until the seedlings or your cuttings are looking starving. Just start feeding a little bit earlier, usually when they've got their first true leaves, actually, is a good rule of thumb. And eventually, of course, your seedlings need to be transplanted. How do you go about that using peat-free compost? I do it in exactly the same way. So transplant into, it could be a multi-purpose compost because that will have more nutrient content in it than the seed and cutting compost so once they're large enough to handle then you can transplant them into the next size up and that might be for your tomatoes a nine centimeter or one liter pot for something bigger you might be putting it straight in the ground if it's peas and beans or something like that yes one of our colleagues told me that all his expensive seeds failed to germinate but it turned out that he was using a multi-purpose compost that didn't have any recommendation on the label for seed sowing. So it is important to read the label on the packets before you buy. It is, because the term multi-purpose does kind of insinuate that actually you could use it for everything, but really you can't. And if you spent quite a lot of money on your seeds, then it's worth spending that bit extra on getting the right compost for them. So, cuttings. How do you work your magic with cuttings when you're talking peat-free compost? You do want one that's quite well-drained. This is probably where I might sometimes, if I was using a multi-purpose compost for taking cuttings, add a bit of sharp sand. But make sure, it again, it doesn't get too wet because then it's cold and then you're much less likely to get good rooting. Sharp sand will improve the drainage, so... Especially if you know that you're gonna, you've got cuttings that might take quite a long while to take. If I was taking rosemary cuttings, I wouldn't bother adding anything to anything because they root so easily. But if I was maybe taking Daphne cuttings, then yes, I would probably add a bit of sharp sand and certainly in that instance, bottom heat as well. Now, there's loads of people out there, as we both know, who've been using peat-based products for years and they're very reluctant to swap this well-tried and reliable material for something new. Have you got any words for them? I would say 
whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. And actually, that's a good thing. And also, there's lots of countries in the world that have never grown plants in peat-based compost because they don't have the natural resource there. No, this is perfectly true. An RHS researcher went to the United States where they grow in all sorts of other things like the chaff from rice. So it's by no means universal that peat moss is used. So it is a habit with us. We're used to it, we're comfortable with it, but we will be just as comfortable with peat-free compost once we get used to it. Thank you so much, Nikki. That was really interesting. Oh, thank you for chatting to me, Guy. Oh, pleasure. Nikki wrote an article for the RHS with all her recommendations for peat-free propagation. You can find a link to it in our show notes if you'd like to learn more. There's a host of peat-free compost brands on offer in garden centres and elsewhere, and it can be confusing to know which one to get started with. There have been some rather poor ones in the past, but the technology of peat-free composts is improving all the time. And the ones that I use are called SilverGrow, and they're actually licensed by the RHS. They're based on wood chip, and we find them very effective. But there's plenty of other composts, and I, I like to try a few different ones each year, just so I can better advise the RHS members. And as long as you follow the instructions carefully, uh, they all seem to give a good result in my hands anyway. And for our final feature, we're heading to Wisley. RHS advisor Jenny Bowden is conducting a survey of British gardeners as part of a larger research project to find the most suitable and eco-friendly substitutes for box hedges. Box is just one of those plants that you've kind of grown up with. You may have seen it clipped into chickens or crowns or squirrels. It could be box balls, it could be spirals or low hedges, but it really is part of the British landscape, part of the European landscape. And it does seem a shame, but our box plants are being threatened by both box blight and also by box tree caterpillar. So we are looking for alternatives for box, but also we hope that scientific advancements will mean that we can carry on growing it, but we need to do both things. So we're looking for sustainable alternatives to box. Sustainable meaning that you don't have to intervene with any pesticides, basically. Ideally, they're going to have similar qualities to box. So box tolerates a really wide range of soil conditions. So it can deal with improved clay soils. It can deal with drought. It can't deal with prolonged periods of waterlogging, but it's very, very adaptable. And temperature-wise, it's happy in a very wide range of temperatures as well. So it's a really, really tough cookie to come up with an alternative. But we're looking for something that's easy to propagate, doesn't get pests and diseases, grows in a wide range of conditions, is easily available, because box, you can just buy it so easily. So this is what our survey is seeking to find out what people have been planting as an alternative, which is going to lead to an ultimate list of plants which have been tried and tested. So Christmas box has got potential, that's sarcococca, all the privets, the ligustrums, the ones with the quite small leaves, so it's much smaller than your basic privet, they're really promising. They need quite a lot of clipping through the year several times, which is the only downside. And also a conifer 
called podocarpus is also a very interesting substitute which isn't so well known but if it's so successful which it's proving to be in our wall garden it's very responsive to being clipped maybe that's something that can be popularized it's got very very tiny leaves so when you clip it you get a lovely surface it's very neat and tidy and it's hardy and it's been in the wall garden for six or seven years now and it took a little while to establish but now it's the right shape that's wanted in the wall garden it's responding very very well and following the recent weather, there are a few that stand out in their magnificence of durability. And I, I, probably the best one is the yew. It's a low-growing yew called Taxus rapandans. And that's been there throughout. It's this lovely, lovely deep green. And it's just so neat and tidy. And it's like a picture frame around the plants. The other thing that I'd really like to point out is that box isn't finished. There's some really interesting research into cultivars that are more resistant to box blight. And regarding the box tree caterpillar, there's also quite a lot of work going into biological controls. And for historic landscapes, it's really important that people are able to carry on growing box. There just isn't really a plant that does what box does. And interestingly, we've had some results back from the National Trust. And I would say a good proportion of the properties that I've had responses back from are growing it with no issues from either problem. Perhaps they're in rural locations, but they haven't had any problem with either box tree caterpillar or box blight. So I think when you work in advisory, you're so used to people sending you dead bits of box you have to bear in mind that it is growing well in some parts of the country still. Thanks there to Jenny. The Box Alternative Survey is ongoing. Whether you've had an amazing, disastrous or just so-so experience with a hedge, we'd love to hear from you. You can find a link to the survey in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. Spring is almost on us and at this time of year it's all about getting ready to start sowing and even sowing some hardy things like broad beans and lettuces in the greenhouse at any rate. People with clay gardens might have to wait till April before it actually dries out enough. In my garden I'm rushing to finish pruning evergreen hedges and shrubs because they'll start growing soon and this is the ideal time to do it and I want to get it done before the birds start nesting of course. So that's my main thing and also I want to finish the apple and rose pruning get all that done before the weather finally turns around in March, the sun comes up, the days get longer and we can really start gardening. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. As we look to the year ahead, start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products, endorsed by the RHS, includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space 
and get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige Joinery products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.